Hello, this is an interview with the authors of the paper on active dendrites. Now, if you haven't seen it, I've made a comprehensive paper review video on this paper. And I released that yesterday, if you watch this video as it comes out, which obviously you do. Today, I'm going to interview the authors and we've all seen my review. So we'll be able to directly dive in. So if you haven't seen the review yet, and you want to know what's in the paper, maybe that is a good place to start. The authors here were really helpful and really informative, answering all of my questions and concerns that I had and even bringing up some new interesting insights. So I hope you learn something from this interview, or at least that it entertains you. And if you have any comments, please let me know in the comments below the video. I'll see you around. Bye bye. Hey there, today's sponsor is the course on introduction to graph neural networks. This is a course by my friend Zach Jost, who is an expert in graph neural networks, and also runs the Welcome AI Overlords YouTube channel has a very interesting blog and does many other cool things. He's packed all his knowledge of graph neural networks into one course that will educate you on both the theoretical and hands on practical aspect on graph neural networks. Graph neural networks are really important. They're definitely one of the most interesting areas in deep learning right now. They're on the upswing. They model data that has an underlying structure that is connected, that is not really well fit for any of the classic formats like tables or images. They've also powered a lot of recent advances in scientific breakthroughs, such as alpha-fold protein structure predictions or better traffic predictions. So if you're interested in graph neural network, I'll definitely recommend you check out that course. If you use my link, you'll get a 15% discount on the course. Enrollment is open right now and lasts until April 1st or until spaces run out. The course is a six weeks course. It's cohort based. You'll get access to a community to discord community of other students, and you'll get all the materials and hands on experience. All right, let's get into the video now. See ya. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm here with the three joint first authors of the paper on active dendrites, Abi, Karan and Akash. And I'm very, very happy to have you all here. This paper covers many areas, it covers biology, it covers neural networks, it covers kind of different architectures of stuff. So it's very cool that you all sort of are here and, and, and are able to sort of answer my questions. <laughs> Welcome, all of you. Yeah, thanks, Yannick. Thanks for having thanks us. Thanks for having us. It, it's very, it's a very interesting paper. So I saw this paper and I was intrigued because um, it's not often that a lot of people say they do biologically inspired things, uh, but it's not often that someone really goes and says, "Look, you know, here's what's missing. Let's build it in, and then it actually leads to something that that works and that is." Uh, you know, the hypothesis in your paper, the hypotheses you pose on what should happen are actually confirmed at the end. And this is, I think, a very good story arc for a paper and a really nice thing to write up. Um, so is this, is this, how did this come to be? How did you get the idea of bringing these very two distant, not too distant, but these two distant fields together of, of sort of neuro, neurobiology and deep learning? Well, at Numenta, 
Um, we're interested. One of the things we're interested in is in continual learning and and le learning multiple multiple tasks, more generally speaking. And so, um, you know, we're looking. We're, but but a lot of neural networks and uh, the and deep learning today focuses on um, sol trying to solve a single task. So we said, well, you know, how is biology enabling um, the ability to solve multiple things in sequence or you know at the same time uh, learning different things? And so and so you know. Um, from, there's been a lot of work out there on active dendrites, and so and, and it's not exactly clear what their role was. Um, but uh, a little while back, we speculated that hey, they might actually be helping um, at the at the neural level to um, to allow for to, for continual learning. And so, if we can build th this idea into um, deep learning, then there might be some um, there might be some uh, prospect there for um, addressing problems like continual learning and multitask learning. So is it fair to say that it grew out of sort of a need to solve a task? I think it grew out of the need to solve multiple tasks um, in sequence, either learning them together or, or in sequence yep. continuously. Um, to, to add on to, to what Karin was saying is that um, we believe that active dendrites can really aid in achieving these specialized neural circuits. And we can apply these ideas directly to any neural network and show some competitive performance on uh, on various benchmarks that involve continual learning setups. Um, so I guess the, the purpose of this project, if you were to just summarize it very briefly, is we just want to show a proof of concept for a new idea that can allow deep learning to work in more dynamic and uh, dynamic environments and scenarios. To kind of add yeah. on to what uh, Karan and Abhi said, so... At a higher level, I think we were kind of examining where a lot of modern deep networks fail, and that's in these like streaming task settings and multitask settings. And the kind of like inspiration for our solution was directed towards biology and biological neurons, which is a lot of what Numentus focuses on. And I think um, quite nicely, we found these like there are existing benchmarks and existing tasks that show that typical deep learning networks fail in these scenarios. And we were able to build in these like biologically inspired neurons to improve the performance in, in such dynamic settings uh, by using the fact that we believe active dendrites in, in biology kind of do this kind of um, context dependent adaptation in multiple tasks. What I found interesting is that even though you, you targeted a little bit towards multi-layer perceptrons in principle, the, these, this uh, active dendrites architecture is sort of pluggable almost anywhere. So you could always ex imagine some sort of a context-dependent signal that gets routed in and uh, modulates the signal that exists. So I think what I'm trying to find out is there are a number of things happening in this model. There is, first of all, the modulation itself which is a relatively, it's not really a known concept, at least in classical deep learning. We always have weighted sums. We rarely have the situation where two, two parts of the signal are multiplied together or one modulates the other. It happens a little bit in LSTMs and so on. The other one is this sort of recognition of a context and, um, and you know, uh, being context dependent and then a third thing is this this sparsity. Now, you have sort of combined all of them. Is there 
one thing that you think is specifically important or is it sort of the, the combination of things that is really what makes the difference? You have some ablations in the paper. Uh, what can you say about this? I think it's it's the combination of all these things acting together. So it's the it's the it's the dendrites which are you know up modulating and down modulating certain neurons to determine which ones should become uh, which which to determine which sub network should be invoked, and then it's the sparsity on top of that which is ensuring that you know a, a large portion of the network is essentially not performing or learning a certain task. And it's those two things um, together which uh, which which really um, gets at this idea of, of using specialized subnetworks for different things. So I, I wouldn't say it's any any one um, one thing that stands out more than the others. So when we get, let's get into the paper itself. Uh, you've seen my review of it. Uh, with respect to just framing the problem and maybe framing the the architecture as such, is there? Do you think I have captured what you've tried to say? Do you think I've left something? important out or, or have put emphasis on or have not put emphasis on something that you would like to put emphasis on when it comes to like what the architecture is what it does and how it works i think your explanations for the architecture at least were, were very good i, I think mm -hmm. it does definitely does capture what we were trying to trying to say um and the, the whole point to kind of reiterate is that the same model with the same principles should work on completely separate areas. One is the multitask reinforcement learning. The other one is continual learning with permuted MNIST. Um, and I think you touched upon that idea too. So, yeah. I think that the kind of motivation that, <clears throat> if, I think you, in, in towards the beginning of your review, you sh you kind of compared the um, typical weighted linear sum neuron with uh, the active dendrites neuron. And I think our motivation in coming up with this architecture was how can we incorporate a lot of these properties in the active dendrites with having like uh, dendrite dendritic segments being able to either like up modulate or down modulate certain neurons in a way that didn't like completely go like it completely changed from like normal back propagation trainable networks. So like this architecture kind of brings in that that flavor of having dendrites influence certain neurons, but does so in a way that mathematically allows for back propagation to um, train, train the networks. And I think you, you touched on that pretty well as well. Do you think, uh, do you think it's valid to sort of bring in biological concepts, even though we train with backpropagation? Because, you know, it's, it's very evident that at least pure, like correct backpropagation isn't happening in the brain. Do you think, you know, it's still valid to bring in the concepts and maybe the brain's doing something like backprop or, uh, do you think we're sort of just kind of taking inspiration from biology in, in order to solve some of our problems. I think it's, I think it's more so the latter. Um, of course, the most accurate biological neural network would likely not use backpropagation, right? Um, but this is one area where I think um, the, the goal was, can we make deep learning just a little bit more plausible? And in doing so, can can we make it a little bit more dynamic? Um, so we're not necessarily here to uh, to to remove backprop entirely um, and and say that that's the best way that um, the dendrites in this architecture can work. Although certainly that's that is how it works in biology. Um, the point was, can we just augment traditional deep neural nets to work in uh, in more dynamic scenarios? Now. 
I had some criticisms with respect to just like the details of your architecture. For example, you always or you often choose the number of dendritic segments to match the number of tasks that you that you have, which obviously if I was a researcher, I would do the same. But can you say maybe something about how this how this is in in the brain? Like how what numbers are we talking about? How many of these of these sub networks that are composed of distal, you know, dendrites? How many are there? Um, approximately? Do you do you do you know? Do you have an idea? And you know, what can you say about you know how many we should build into a problem where we maybe don't know how many tasks we expect? There are, um, from what I recall, probably in the order of a hundred, hundreds or thousands of individual um, dendrite segments for each individual neuron. Actually, that might even it might even be more than that. Um, uh, uh, the 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 actual numbers escape me. Um, but re regarding um, what you said earlier about um, you know having the number of tasks be equal to the number of segments here, we. I mean, we we found that actually, even though in a lot of the experiments we report here, we do set the number of segment uh, dendrites to the number of um, tasks. We found that you know we actually don't need to have that many, and we actually have further studies um, which show that you know we can actually keep the architecture fixed and increase the number of tasks we're doing. I'm talking about uh, continual learning here because for multitask we're, we're focused on um, ten specifically. We can increase the number of tasks, and yet we're and then and the the performance actually doesn't change by much. So that shows that, you know, as we're, as we're, as we're increasing the number of dendrite segments, we actually end up over parameterizing the network quite a bit, which we don't need to do. Yeah. So this is the, the plot on the left, right here. You just increase the number of dendritic segments and the top line is learning 10 tasks and it doesn't get noticeably worse, which I find to be very cool property, right? Like I don't want to have to set a parameter very specifically I can just, you know, set it too high and it doesn't hurt, which is cool. Which leads me to the plot on the right where you discuss, you know, the sparsity. Uh, I'm going to guess that's the sparsity parameter. So that's the thing that ultimately controls K, right? And I find it peculiar, not that there is an optimal setting, which I would expect because that I can't set high, that I have to set between like zero and one, right? So there's going to be like some optimum in between. But this, there's, there's this like two, two bump thing going on. So what's going on there? Why is it like really good at low, like high sparsity? And then there's like this plateau and then it just flat, like crashes down. Um, I think, um, there in, in the beginning, um, you know, if you have, if you have too much, um, so yeah, I always think in terms of sparsity, so I'm converting from density to sparsity. So if you have, <laughs> if, you have if, you, if it's too sparse, right, there's not enough signal going through. And that's why, you know, as you as you increase the amount of signal that you're allowing through, as you're increasing the capacity of your representation, then you're going to get um, you're going to get an increase in performance. But then if you have uh, if you're using up too many units to to create that uh, to create that representation, then you're going to get more interference. Right. And as you have more interference, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to forget more, more network parameters are overwritten as you uh, move on to subsequent tasks. And so you get a drop in accuracy. And, um, and towards the end, so, so you, uh, you know, you notice that it does fall drastically. Um, honestly, I haven't thought too much about to why, why that happens, although it is, it is a pretty, pretty monotonic fall, uh, even though I guess in that, in that upper curve, there is a slight bump with them. And that could just be due to, 
seeding or something like that. But mm. yeah. Yeah, I was more referring to like the plateau itself, right? There's there's this plateau kind of and I I know I know that there could be almost like two two modes of using the sparsity. In one mode, I have entire subnetworks that do the job, and in the other mode, I have like a shared network. Yet I have like separate things that just kind of like track track which task I'm on, um, which would sort of correspond to what the baseline is doing, right? When people say, "Well, the baseline has access to the task too," it can just allocate some units. Uh, no, it. It's maybe not a perfect analogy, but I was just wondering. It, it was just uh, interesting to see that there's this kind of this type of plateau. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's something I guess um, we haven't gone too deep into. But this might um, this might just be a property of sparse representations and how yeah. and how much overlap there is as you as you as you um, increase the sparsity level. It, it could just be something to do with that. Mm -hmm. So in your paper you make really which i appreciate you make really sure that you sort of always have the same amount of let's say trainable parameters in your architectures and you, you show that by arranging them correctly you can you can achieve a better result you, you always use this name of non-zero parameters right is there like is there a difference are there large swaths of zero parameters in one or the of one of these architectures yeah, so this is something that we control for um, in the beginning. This is why we mentioned the idea of weight sparsity. So in the beginning, when um, when we're actually creating the architecture from scratch, we decide that some layers have an X percent sparsity level uh, applied to it. And what that really means is that X percent of the parameters are zero throughout the entire um, uh, part of training um, and even towards the end. So that's why we, we express everything in non-zero parameters. So the MLPs, for instance, at least in reinforcement learning, are trained with no weight sparsity, so it's completely dense. There are no zeros anywhere in the in the uh, in the layers. And and then the your your architecture, you sort of modulate the amount of sparsity, and that is on top of modulating the k parameter of the k winner takes all layers. Yeah, there's two aspects to the sparsity. So one is activation sparsity, which is like. At a hidden, like when you have a hidden state vector, how many neurons remain non-zero after the activation is applied, which is a K-winner activation. And then the second aspect of sparsity is weight sparsity, which is how connected are subsequent layers in the network. Um, so if, if a lot of the, the units in the weight matrix are zero, then this models the fact that to, uh, subsequent layers in, in the network are not very connected, they're sparsely connected. To, to I guess, answer your question again on that is, um... It's not something weight sparsity, at least, is something that it's not something we modulate. It's fixed. It's a fixed percentage that we find, um, and this can either be done through fine tuning or just yeah, just just experimentation. Okay, because I I think yeah, I might I might have just overread that, but but I recall that in the introduction you say you know both the weights and the both the weights and the uh, the activations are sparse. But then, sort of the I think the winner takes all really focuses on the on the activations itself. Have you experimented with setting, you know, something else than k to a number or a percentage, uh, setting maybe a threshold for sparsity or something like this, where whenever a signal is strong enough, it is let through. Hmm. 
we haven't we haven't done anything like that um but we, we could do that and you know there is a chance that um it, it could work out pretty well if we if we have a fixed threshold but one potential downside there is that um you know if you have if you have too many signals that cross the threshold or too many units whose activation crosses the threshold you're going to get more interference when you train or if you have not not enough um neurons whose activation crosses the threshold you're going to get um you're going to get that phenomenon which you which you're showing on the screen right now uh, on the left side where you, where you have a drop in accuracy because your representations aren't, don't have enough capacity so that's why we we uh, we opted to go for um, a fixed value of k, but even if um, you know we we didn't have even if we did have a threshold, I think one of your critiques were here. Um, you know, now we have another hyperparameter k that we're choosing. In the other case, I mean, we'd have to. We'd, our hyperparameter yes. would just be the threshold value there, right? Obviously, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, to me, this this continual learning setup is is very cool, and you can generate data very easily using this permuted MNIST. Uh, but there is an, a bit of an issue that I have, and that is that if I use permuted MNIST, there is another thing, there's like all the tasks are like the same difficulty, right? They're, they're essentially the same task, it's just permuted. So I need to learn, yes, I need to learn like a different function. So this would be the permutation identity and then the pixels are permuted somehow, right? So all the tasks are kind of the same, right? Which warrants a static network architecture and every context vector is kind of the same length, right? And all the dendrites, they can, they can sort of specialize in each of their little task recognition. What would change here? Or is, it, is this a drastic requirement to your architecture? Or do you think if many of the tasks were wildly different from each other. And you have this a little bit in the robot example. So what can you tell about um, when tasks are very different in their difficulty, uh, maybe in their amount of training data? Like how do these things influence an architecture that's targeted towards continual learning? In our case, um, I think th there, uh, there might actually be um, similarities between different tasks. And so like, you know, for example, in, in this case, um, in permuted MNIST, right, there, there's a, there's a certain, certain pixels are more likely to be white and certain pixels are more likely to be black depending on the permutation. So maybe, you know, two, two different permutations could have more overlap in terms of which pixels are white, which pixels are, are black, or they could be totally separate. And if they're uh, more, um, if they're more similar, uh, if the permutations are more similar, then we could expect that the 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 subnetworks that are selected by the dendrites will probably have more are likely to overlap more in which neurons become active since there's a lot of there's probably a lot of similar computation going on but of course uh, you know in that case difficulty um, doesn't really change at all I think to add, kind of add on to that I think a lot of it depends on the quality of the context signal because ultimately that's the part of the network that indicates to the active dendrites what kind of task you're solving, how similar is it to previous tasks you might have seen, and things like that. So I think that in this in this permuted MNIST case, the way we're computing the context does allow for this property that Karin just mentioned, where if there's some overlap in the, the input space, then the context signal for that will, will demonstrate this input and perhaps allow for overlapping subnetworks to emerge. Whereas if you have like wildly different tasks, which is something we see more in the robotics environment, then these context signals can like differ more and um, indicate that 
the, the, the subnetworks must be like, must not overlap. I think it would be really interesting. And we've talked about this before to try a similar setup in a continual like robotics learning case where you have a streaming set of like robotics tasks. Um, and I think that would probably be a, a super interesting study to do um, and something that hopefully we will try at some point in the future. So I had I had some observations with respect to your experimental setup. And it's very cool that you do two different things, but there are also noticeable differences on how you implement the two different tasks, right? In the first task, you give the task ID directly. Um, in the second tasks, you do this, this, this prototyping approach, which is a more advanced approach. Uh, can you tell a little bit about how, is there like a, a reason why in, because I could also imagine you just give me the task ID in the second task, or I do the prototyping in the first task. Is there like a research process reason? Like, did you find that some things did work or didn't work or how, how did this come about that all of a sudden we're introduced in the new task, we're introduced to this new way of detecting the context? I think in the context of the multi-agent, like, sorry, the uh, multitask reinforcement setup, like the environment setup itself gives the task ID. And I think that the concept of multitask learning itself is more focused on if you have different tasks, which may conflict with one another in terms of the types of behavior you have to do or the types of predictions can, how can you mathematically still optimize your like joint objective function without, and still be able to perform well on all the tasks. And the problem shifts not so much from trying to infer what task you're doing to more, you know, what task you're doing and you want to try to do all of them. How can, how can we like optimize this joint objective? And this is kind of the, the way we use this one hot task encoding is in line with passwords that deal with multitask learning and multitask reinforcement learning, where you have this like one hot task encoding that is provided. I do agree that like the one hot encoding is quite convenient and a little bit arbitrary. You can probably use like a denser representation for each task or try to infer it. But I think for the purposes of our experiments, this one hot encoding seemed simple as it was environment provided and um, kind of like the point of the multitask setup was to, again, like try to show that this network architecture prevents from like conflicting updates with, uh, across tasks and avoids this like interfering um, updates from occurring. I think for continual learning, the kind of, um, the kind of setup of the problem itself is is a little bit vaguer in that you have to, you're not always provided with the task IDs and you have to infer this on the fly, uh, which again, I think Karin can talk a little bit more about. Um, yeah, in, in continual learning, there are a couple um, other recent papers that have come out in the last couple of years and they're not providing task ID and the, and the model actually needs to infer the task ID as it does some sort of, you know, modulation or, or whatever their whatever their technique is so we thought you know that that makes the problem a bit more challenging a bit more interesting so since we are working on continual learning and comparing to some of these other methods let's also try to infer um what the what the what the task should be so the, it's it's if i if i hear this correctly it's very much inspired by the environment itself like what the what the problem is supposed to be and not like because if I see something like this, there, I always have the vague suspicion that people try something and it didn't work. And it's like, well, tr let's try something else. But it, there's also, I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't want to infer that. So it's, it's always good to hear like, okay, this really came about through the environment. Um, 
And I mean, it would be equally cool if he, if it was the other thing, but I'm just always interested to hear so I can adjust my priors. Uh, what do you did I think this just to add really quick, sorry, just to add really quickly, I think in the reinforcement learning setup as well, um, because the state space is like similar, it's shared across all the tasks because essentially it's hard to infer from the states what task you might be doing if you weren't given such an ID. And the only information you would have is like the reward signal and that might not be enough to like infer what the task is. Um, so like appending, giving a task Especially ID given, as part given of that the it's at the end, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like, you know, you do, you do something and then you get like a reward and then you find out what task you just did. Like that's okay. I agree with you. That's really not helpful at all. Also, I think one, one thing to add here is that we did try a couple. So I think this is something you pointed out in your intro where, um, the task IDs that we're using are, are one hot encoded, right? At least for multitask RL. Um, and that means that all these tasks are entirely orthogonal to each other. And it really doesn't reflect how similar one task is to another. Um, and it really doesn't also reflect how different one task might be from another. Um, so one thing that we were experimenting with, um, I think we mentioned briefly in the paper is that we tried having an embedding layer that effectively embeds this one hot encode into some other higher dimensional representation and using this instead of that one hot encode as a context. And I think what we eventually found was that, um, using the embedding or not using the embedding produced fairly similar results. Um, so we just, we just decided to remove it for simplicity's sake. Um, but one thing to note is that using the embedding allows you to uh, represent contexts, I think, that are a little bit more um, nuanced in the sense that the embedding, since it's trained via end-to-end -end backprop, um, any task that is similar to another task would have a shared um, representation in that higher dimensional embedding. And ones that are really separate from each other would likewise correspond to um, huge distances apart in that higher dimensional space. Um, but the, the one hot encode is entirely orthogonal from, from each other, each task, but it still worked out pretty well um, compared to the embedding. I mean, yeah, and, and if it gets more complicated, I think you could, you could put entire sub-neural networks, at, you know, instead of that, even that embedding layer, you could have non-linearities inferring sort of uh, more complicated task uh, task embedding or task relations it is it is interesting though with respect to um, with respect to the, the the context itself you learn these things all of this through backprop and my question oh, I think I brought this up is would this be like a candidate for maybe unsupervised pre-training that you sort of maybe collect episodes or something in your multitask RL and then just sort of decide based on this, you know, how do we structure our dendritic segments in order to recognize the context, maybe some sort of contrastive objective or, or anything like, is this something that came, I, I just blurt these things out when I do the reviews, right? I never know if they're entirely stupid or if people have thought about it or and discarded it. Is that something that is a candidate? I don't think it's something that we considered, um, but an interesting thing to note is that if we did use this for some kind of unsupervised pre-training tactic, is that when you're actually fine-tuning the network, your context vectors are different. So that's a, that's that's something I think that would be that would be the most important nuance to investigate. Um, I personally don't know how well that would work if we trained on a set of contexts that are different during the the unsupervised portion, and then use a totally different set of contexts during the fine-tuning procedure. Um, I would imagine that doesn't work well. Um, so yeah. 
to add on to that, I think, uh, yeah, kind of like when I when I heard you say that in, in your review, it was quite interesting. I think from the perspective of reinforcement learning at a high level, I don't know if this will work out, but it would be quite quite cool to see if um, if you can train these dendritic segments to either produce, like if you can train them to recognize different contexts and maybe guide exploration in different ways based on the context in an unsupervised manner and maybe like do different things in different contexts as an exploration strategy, I think that'd be super cool. Again, I think the, the challenge there would be to like come up with a clever way of generating context in an unsupervised way. So I think that that should that, that would be an interesting area of, uh, of investigation as to like how, to, how do you come up with context signals in an unsupervised manner. A contrastive approach might be cool there. And given these contexts, how do you train these active dendrites to modulate neurons um, to do what you want it to do? And I think thinking about that in the, in the, in the lens of exploration in RL could be quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, you could sort of even prepare for contexts that you hadn't considered before. Uh, maybe new instructions in a in a in a familiar environment or something like this. Uh, you have this this notion of prototyping to recognize the the context, which I found very interesting because it's sort of an it's kind of like an unsupervised online way. Even like as the data streams in, you create these new prototypes and so on. And sure, there's some hyperparameters, but I think my main concern is that you know just taking the average of the samples as they you know as they come in right here, it's going to work for something very simple um, like permuted MNIST or so. But this gets to its limits very quickly, right? Uh, if I think about ImageNet classification or so. It is it is quite limited. How how can this idea be extended to let's say arbitrary complexity? Like what would I have to do with this online prototyping approach to make it I mean, like to, to make it usable for more complex problems? Hey, look, I think you're absolutely right that um, this technique only works for something like permuted MNIST, where you get really good task separation um, through just averaging the examples from a single task. And that's why it works so well here, right? We actually evaluated how well uh, how well this clustering procedure works, and it's like it, it works pretty well. It's not it's not mis misclassifying things when when it's clustering the prototypes. But if we want something that's a bit more general and can apply to other domains like um, uh, like ImageNet, as you mentioned, um, I think something along the lines of self-supervised learning might might help there. That way, you know, you're you're trying to build build um, a, proto a a context vector that is going to provide you sufficiently good uh, task separation, and it's not as simple as just just averaging. Um, does that does that get at your question? Yeah, no, that, absolutely. Um... And I think also in like meta learning in literature, there are prototyping methods that maybe like process the raw input into an embedding space and then do clustering similar to what we're doing there. So I think uh, uh, that that would be a quite simple approach that is similar in flavor to this one, but kind of embeds the uh, raw input, like an ImageNet input into some better clusterable space. Um, is Another thing I noticed, and this is a minor thing, but here you feed the context signal into both of your layers. And in the experiment before here, you, you, you draw this very, very accurately. You feed the context signal into only one of the layers. So it doesn't, it doesn't go in here. Is there a particular reason behind the choice of this? 
Yeah, so there's a bit of background regarding this. Um, I, I want to say first that the, the continual learning and reinforcement learning projects started, it started out as separate areas within Numenta. And the goal for this was really to see if the same principles of the same model could work equally in both of these areas. So while we did modulate both the layers in continual learning, the intuition for not doing so in reinforcement learning was a bit different. It was that the first layer should contain all the shared information the model needs, and that and you could really do this without activating any specific subnetworks. And that the second layer would then activate the context-dependent subnetworks for each task. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right that we could have tried doing in-depth experiments where we modulated both layers for the, for the RL setup. Um, I think we started doing that at the beginning of this project, but, um, we, we found it worked reasonably well, but because of the time and computing constraints of running each of these RL experiments, we decided to stick with the original plan, um, and really pick a few key experiments and key architectures to run and really leave the ablations for the continual learning experiments, which are really significantly faster to run. Um, but you are absolutely right though. Um, we just went off of our intuition on this one. I mean, I don't want to like, this is, it's, it's just my reviewer two popping up and be like, Hey, you know, <laughs> but it's good. I mean, it's, it's even interesting to see, yeah, that these, this is kind of a convergence of projects. Could you tell us a little bit more about just the research process you, you you already talked about how this came to be but like the process of of researching this it's it's kind of a new thing right you you, you propose a new architecture the tasks are let's say not that mainstream people work on them but they're not super mainstream um like is it was it like smooth sailing from beginning to end like stepwise improvement or was there points that just didn't work at all for a long time? Are there entire avenues that you discarded um, and didn't didn't end up working out? Like, could you, I don't know, let other people, I don't know what you what you can or want to disclose, but it's always interesting to hear, you know, what also didn't work out during a project. Yeah, I can I can uh, start off. Um, you know, when we first tried implementing some of these ideas behind dendrites. Uh, you know, you, you noticed that, uh, you know, we talk about this, um, this, that we're picking the maximum, uh, dendritic activation and then, um, and we're, we're using that to modulate. But actually, you know, it was, it was through the process of trial and error that we realized that, um, we were, you know, we were just working on an initial toy task. We weren't, um, we weren't working on continual learning back then. We found that, hey, we actually can't, um, uh, we actually can't turn things off. We can only turn them on because you are picking the maximum value, right? So how do you get, how do you get something that's super sparse? So we actually want to turn things off. So he's like, oh, okay, let's go back and let's actually, um, not just pick the maximum, but pick the maximum and keep the sign. So we're, if something's really negative, we're picking that. And so there's a whole appendix section, um, and that's that's actually the detail of how that does, that's in the details of how we're actually implementing this. So through a bit of trial and error, and then also with um, uh, you know picking the pro going back to the prototype. Uh, you know, for a while we were thinking, well, you know, how can we get something that um, really provides sufficient task differentiation? So we tried a bunch of different things. Uh, you know, we um, just like just like Abhi mentioned, he had um, he had a, a, a linear embedding which was created from from his context. We also had one for continual learning, but that didn't really work too well either. And we ended up settling converging on something that's really dumb and simple for permuted dumbness that ended up working out. Um, yeah. There's actually, um, just based off of what Karin was saying, if you go to figure 11, I think you had some points there as well. Um, 
to visualization, Nine. if I remember correctly. Yeah, this one. 11, yeah. yeah. Um, so if you notice, like we use the exact same gating technique for both continual learning and multitask reinforcement learning, and that's the absolute max gating. So um, you're picking not only the absolute max, but you're, you're retaining the sign. Um, and what you'll notice is that the initial intuition for doing this was that, as Curran just said, is you want to give each neuron the ability to either turn on or turn off. Um, and it's very interesting because if you look at the results in multitask RL, you can see that for neuron B at least, you see some negative activations, those red squares that you see. So that's effectively the, the, the neuron being told to turn off. Uh, it's the exact opposite of a positive, a strongly positive activation. But I think what's something that's very interesting to see is at least for the two neurons that we've showed for um, continual learning on the right-hand side, you don't really see that happening. It's either the neuron doesn't receive uh, high magnitudes of activation or it receives really high magnitudes, but it's all positive. Um, so it's something interesting to note um, that we were, even even in the, in the multitask RL part, we were working, trying to understand would max gating work better than absolute max gating uh, in the sense that do we want to discard the sign or keep the sign? Um, so yeah, it's, th there's a lot of, um, in the beginning, there was a lot of trial and error process. Um, in multitask RL too, we had a, a, a good amount of time spent on understanding what the right sparsity levels were to, uh, to apply for the, the weight sparsity in the feed forward layers. Um, what we, what we saw, I think is, is, is also pretty sort of, it's intuitive. If you really increase your sparsity level to a, to a really high sparsity, there's just not enough information in the network to keep training and your, your accuracy sort of plummets. But something that's interesting to note is that there's always a sweet spot for, for sparsity. Um, and once you reach there, it's, uh, that's, that's when the accuracy is the best. And how do you, what, how do you debug these things? What, what is your main method? Is your main method mainly setting a parameter and then running things or what, what are good ways to like, are there good ways to peek inside and what's happening? Like, what are things that you look at to debug something like this? Like, oh, we are not sparse enough or we're too sparse or we don't turn off neurons or something like this. I think diagrams like this, which you have on your screen, are a perfect example, um, you know, visualizations of how the of how the dendrites are behaving. So I think there was at one point um, early on, uh, you know, here, here, you, here you have in both cases after learning that, you know, different segments are responding uh, to different tasks uh, context, but there are cases where this uh, early on, where these diagrams looked looked exactly like um, just um, just really just uh, horizontal bars, right? So you have the same segment that's just winning all the time, and so you're yeah. like, so we realized, okay, well, this is not right. We don't want the same segment to always win. So um, that that helps in identifying, okay, this is why the network is failing, and so we go back. So you and, would you would look at these things even during your research process. It's oh, not yeah. just something that you made after the fact uh, just to demonstrate to the to the readers yeah yeah oh yeah yeah this was this was a very helpful tool for uh, debugging cool i mean that's really interesting to hear right and a lot of the architecture decisions um that were made in continual learning were used um in in, in multitask rl simply because i think the each multitask experiment took 25 hours to run plus easily um, so it was really hard to change a parameter, observe how the, the results and visualizations looked, and then sort of edit from there on. So a lot of the intuitions that, that we got in RL came from uh, Curran's uh, continual learning experiments. So that was, that was nice. Did you ever uh, compare these things to 
well, it's not it's not too easy to compare, but sort of a baseline because there is the danger with these things that you kind of interpret. I think I said, well, couldn't this be just like a like the difference between the top and the bottom just be you know one is at initialization and one is trained and maybe has not much to do with sparsity? Did you ever compare this to something that isn't explicitly sparse or anything like this? Like, is there something you, you can you can say? as a reference point. Yeah, so there's there's two things to note there. The first is that, at least for this visualization, the, the activations are normalized with respect to when they were trained. So it's, I, I think you mentioned this in your, in your intro as well. You said that, could it potentially be that you have really high activations in the beginning and the area that you've circled there in purple, um, it just sort of, sort of gets dimmed down. And I think the, the important thing to note is they're all normalized. So the range of values between the highest uh, activated neurons uh, are much higher than the, the lowest activated neurons after training than before training. But to address the second point, you're, uh, I think that's regarding figure 10, if you scroll up. Um, and that was, why don't we have like a baseline for this? Um, is it really that the active dendrites networks that are creating these hypersparse uh, subnetworks? And to that, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, we should have had uh, a nice diagram here that also showed how this would look in a baseline MLP. You're, you're absolutely right. That's something that we could definitely include. I mean, I totally believe you that it's like very sparse. It's just that it's not it's not obvious from a diagram like this. Like what you know what what should I expect? I, I, I yeah. But cool. Um, yeah, there is one one other thing in that. By the way, like I I have mad respect for you for including the graph on the right like <laughs> like mad respect like 90 percent plus of researchers where they try something like this specifically because no one would notice if you leave this away right no one no one comes to you and says well okay maybe someone comes to you but no no one would seriously miss adding the the si to both of these things and you you know at the left you beat them very clearly so you know huge respect for uh for including that that is it's it's i think to be commended and to be highlighted i think um you know when, when, we, when we present a new architecture like this um you know we we really want to show the community that hey we can we can uh, do things like continual learning with our more biologically inspired ideas um and it's competitive with what's already out there right so even if we're not beating the state of the art, I think that that's perfectly fine. Even though, you know, nowadays, um, a lot of machine learning has turned into this competition of, you know, getting the, getting the best numbers. Uh, and, and if you don't have the best numbers, apparently that, that means you, you won't be able to publish anymore. So. <laughs> yeah. To, to add on to that, I think the, the purpose of this paper was really something I said that we all said in the beginning, and you now it's, um, we really want to show a, a proof of concept for this completely novel architecture. The goal is really not to get state-of-the-art accuracy on either of these benchmarks. Um, it's really about the, the promise of something new, um, something that I think that deep learning is, has been missing for the past, what, 10 years or so? So, yeah, it's, it's exciting. And the last thing maybe we, we can get into is this comparison to other to other networks because you 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 very clearly address this in like a paragraph um and i think wait i i have like a, even a transformer diagram somewhere you clearly address this in a paragraph saying like isn't this just equivalent to to like a bigger network 
And I try to myself also to come up with, you know, is there some way I could do the multiplication in like an MLP? And I'm, I'm fairly convinced there isn't, but there is a connection clearly to like LSTMs, which do modulate things with like forget gates and so on. They even have sigmoids, right? Uh, so they can, they can module, model this, this on or off and uh, also sparsity to an extent. And I also think that a transformer could conceivably, like a two-layer transformer could conceivably model the interaction right here. Did you explore at all like the, the, inter like the connections of sort of this active dendrites framework to other models? Is there something you can say about that? I definitely think that these are great observations, by the way, that the, the kind of relationship between attention and transformers and like the gating and LSTMs and GRUs, there's definitely a, a, a relationship between those mechanisms and what we're doing here. I think uh, in our research process, we, we definitely thought a lot about how this gating mechanism is, could be related to like things like multi-headed attention, where basically you're doing a similar thing where you're matching keys and queries uh, as vectors with an inner product and then using that as a way to see what parts of a sequence, for example, to wait when you're considering a certain position. I think the key difference in terms of, I think the, 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 the similarity is that for, for in, the, in the specific instance of um, attention, you are using learned weights to, to match uh, a given input. So for example, in our active dendrites, you're matching the context with the set of de uh, dendritic segments. And then in, um, in attention, you're matching like, the query vector with a set of keys. Um, I think that the key difference is that the purpose for which is it's done here in active dendrites, you're looking at a specific neuron and you're saying, okay, given the context, is this neuron relevant in transformers? You're saying, okay, here's a position. What context around me in terms of the, uh, in terms of the sentence, for example, is relevant for me and how can I wait certain aspects of it? So I think it's a little bit like flipped in how in the interpretation, like, of the focus um kind of shifting to the lstm aspect i think as a mechanism it's quite similar in that the lstms actually like turn off or turn on certain units themselves um to, to carry forward in time i think yeah exactly that what's done here i think that the difference is now like focus more on the sparsity aspect of it in lstms you're, you're trying to you're doing like a weighted sum between what's in the past and what's current and saying okay let's pass this forward um, and there's no aspect of like using this to enforce a level of sparsity. Um, here we're saying, okay, like let's turn off certain things and do that in order to remain sparse and pass forward this information. So there's definitely a relationship there. Um, I think the interpretation is similar, but a little bit different. And I, I think in all of these things, uh, again, to, to highlight LSTMs and transformers, they're all trained, let's say with, with backprop and all the parameters are trained. So still you're, you'd run into the same problems where if you do this continual learning, tasks would interfere with each other, no matter how much, you know, they can implement the multiplication. So that's, that's definitely, definitely a difference. So in your, in your, um, outlook section, I haven't mentioned this in the video, but you discuss sort of what to do next. And it, I, you mentioned a lot of like, oh yeah, we want to investigate maybe uh, the combination of RL and continual learning and so on. Is there something that's here? Uh, is there, is there, yeah, you, you said, um, you mentioned neuroscience a little bit. 
what would be sort of the next big things from neuroscience to include in deep learning architectures that aren't yet really done by other people? Like, is there something where, you know, you could say, well, if we had that, uh, that's not really in our deep networks yet, but if we had that, that would be like amazing. I think um, this is a very small point, um, but the dendrites that we're sort of modeling right now are can, they can be considered the basal dendrites. I think you went over this briefly in your in your intro, and the basal dendrites are responsible for receiving this context and depolarizing the the main cell to either fire or not if that context was recognized. Something that we haven't looked into, which could be potentially interesting, is modeling apical dendrites. And the apical dendrites receive feedback either from, uh, they receive feedback, feedback from other cells and that also biases the, the, the soma to fire or not. Um, I think that could be a potentially interesting way to, uh, to also gate each individual neuron. Um, I think standard deep learning doesn't do any of this anyway. They only consider the proximal dendrites, which is, um, mimicked by the simple, simple linear weighted sum to determine if the neuron is fired. But if we can gather all this other neuroscience background from all the other kinds of dendrites too, like, like apical dendrites, it could be a very potentially interesting architecture, like a very powerful one for, uh, for dynamic scenarios. I mean, the issue of top-down feedback or lateral, lateral inhibition or anything like this, it's a lot of people talk about it, but I haven't yet seen anyone successfully sort of bring it into a deep network and, uh, and actually do something useful with it. So... Yeah, I definitely think, you know, beyond dendrites, uh, just mechanisms like this would be super helpful. I think like another aspect, which is a little bit quite different from what Avi just said, that would be quite interesting is the the kind of local learning rule aspects that are present in biological neurons and how they might relate to unsupervised learning in traditional machine learning. I think a lot of the unsupervised learning objectives are kind of addendums to the loss function that we think might be useful and it just kind of flows through the network and kind of i don't think there i might be wrong but i don't think there's a lot of research into like figuring out which parts of the network could focus on certain things in an unsupervised way which might be better done in biological networks so i think thinking about that um and getting inspiration to see like what kind of local learning rules in an unsupervised way could improve performance in uh, modern deep learning would be super cool Cool. Um, yeah. So do you have anything, anything to add, anything people should know or that we haven't talked about yet about the paper? People can get started with your code, which is online, right? I've seen that, which is very cool. Um, yeah. Anything you want to get off your, like get out there to the viewers? The take home message, um, from this is what we, we want, um, what we want to be is, is that, um, look, the, um, the brain is, you know, able to do a lot of different things. It's using different neural circuits to do it. But, you know, neural networks, as they've been designed uh, decades ago, they're really just optimizing for one thing. They're great function approximators. But you don't just want to approximate one function. You want to be able to approximate multiple functions. And so we want, so we're trying to, to show that, you know, hey, look, there are, there are ways where we can get neural networks to actually, um, you know, have these, have different sub subnetworks, different neural circuits that are able to, uh, be independent, be, be different, uh, function approximators. And if we can do that, then, you know, neural networks can, will be able to operate in more, 
um, more dynamic, uh, changing um, scenarios. And I think that's that's really exciting because the world is constantly changing. Um, but a lot of the applications for deep learning right now are, are, are a lot of the environments that they operate in are static. So if we can get to that, then then that that that, that, that that's great. Cool. Well, Akash, Karen, Avi, thank you very much for being here today. Uh, this was this was great fun, and I learned a lot. Yeah, and thanks, Yannick. This... And now yeah. uh, now you're influencing my uh, uh, fashion. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'll join the I'll join the show. <laughs> thanks so much for being here. I yeah I hope you I hope you continue this because it's really cool, and I think we're we're missing it in deep learning. Thanks, Yannick. That was a lot of fun. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us.